Welcome to On the Side with Jackie London, a BS-free podcast where we're talking all things food, nutrition, and wellness to help you build healthier habits that stick. As a registered dietitian, author, journalist, and former clinician turned content creator, I've heard and seen it all. Join me each week as I debunk diet myths, explore the latest wellness trends, and answer all of your pressing listener questions. Plus, we'll hear from a guest who will kick off each interview weekly with a soup-to-nuts rundown and, okay, sometimes analysis of what they're eating, cooking, ordering in, or where they're dining out with tons of delicious ideas, lots of laughs, and plenty of pro tips in between. The one thing I can actually guarantee, I'll serve up tangible, actionable strategies to help you apply the science behind what works to what works best for you. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Side with Jackie London. I'm amped up about today's episode because I've got to say I learned so much from this interview. This right now, what we're in right now this week is Food Allergy Awareness Week, which is uh, the perfect moment to speak with a food allergy expert. Sherry Coleman Collins is a very brilliant dietitian who is a mom. She is also a consultant and spokesperson for the National Peanut Board. And she, we actually met a number of years ago when I was working in magazines. I had the pleasure of reconnecting with her again. And honestly, I learned so much and it really reminded me of how much I learned about this topic previously, which is amazing how the brain works that way. But also it was really exciting for me to be able to have an interview. You know, a lot of the time on this podcast, we're talking to different people about different topics in food, nutrition, health, in preventative health. But I'm rarely in the position of interviewing someone or talking to someone about very tangible, tactical, realistic step-by-step instructions in in nutrition, especially because when it comes to most things in food and nutrition, there really are no quote-unquote rules. But in the case of peanut introduction and introducing new foods to babies, to kids, and how food allergies can actually be not only managed, but how they can create expansive opportunities to experiment with different recipes, with different cuisines, with different flavors from foods around the world. I honestly, this interview really blew my mind and I feel like I learned so much. So this is a fantastic hour of your life spent with Sherry. I think you will learn so much, especially if you are someone who is pregnant, if you are a new mom, if you are a mom of a child with a food allergy and you have questions about navigating those circumstances and how to do so safely, or if you're concerned about um, your kid going to school this year, there's just, we touched on literally every topic. We talked about school food and allergies in school. We talked about what it's like to introduce new foods to kids who you think maybe at risk for a food allergy. And this is not by any means limited to peanuts. We talked about all different types of food allergies, but we got a little bit specific about the myths versus the facts about peanuts because I honestly, and maybe this is just my experience in media, but there's just so many myths out there. And I think this has been really widely overblown in a lot of ways. However, if you're a parent of a child with a food allergy, this is terrifying to you. So I think everyone and anyone who listens to this episode will feel just a 
a whole lot calmer about managing food allergies and about understanding what they are and what they mean, what the difference is between a food allergy and an intolerance. I just, there's something in here for everyone. You're going to learn a ton. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with Sherry Coleman Collins. You can always reach me at Jacqueline London RD with new interviews, ideas, new guest ideas, questions you have, things you want to hear on the podcast. I'm here for you. And of course, please make sure you leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you're listening now, just drop me a note. I would love to hear from you. All right, let's get to it. Sherry Coleman Collins. But first, let's get to a quick listener question. All right, guys. So today's question is, how bad is it to drink diet soda? Oh, I love this question. And I love it because honestly, as long as you're sticking to one or two of these a day, it's really not bad. In fact, it might even be preferable. I personally am a Coke Zero stan for life. Honestly, I just just love it. It's in my fridge right now in a cold one is one I am going to just serve up for myself when I finish recording this question. All right, here's the deal. The USDA, the FDA has said that all of the artificial sweeteners and sugar substitutes that are currently on the market today are safe for consumption as long as they are in the amount that is generally recognized as safe. And I'm going to explain what that means in just a second. The National Cancer Institute supports that artificial sweeteners don't cause cancer. The American Heart Association considers diet soda to be a great swap for sugary beverages and sugar-sweetened beverages. The um, American Diabetes Association supports this. So we've got like major institutions saying that diet soda is okay. Now, when I say that, what I'm talking about is that generally recognized as safe limits are really well studied by the FDA. They've undergone kind of years of rigorous testing and evaluation. And where we kind of net out on this is that Looking at the amount that you would have to consume per day is based on your weight in kilograms times a certain amount of a specific type of sweetener. That sounds a little bit nebulous and confusing, but what you really need to know is that the upper limit, what's been evaluated and what we can estimate based on the data that is available to us from the FDA, is that in order to even be considered at risk for adverse health effects from a diet beverage, right, that one that's sweetened with artificial sweeteners, you'd have to drink up to 22 cans of diet soda per day. Okay. So just think about that. I mean, that's 22 cans. That's 12 ounces per can. That would mean that that you're not drinking anything else ever. You're only consuming diet soda and you haven't seen a water bottle in about eight years. I mean, you know, purely speculative here, but right? Like that sounds like kind of almost hard to do. So I would say that in the amount that you're likely to be drinking diet sodas, one to two a day, that's totally fine with me. I I would say that, you know, when you think about this and you kind of zoom out a little bit more, you know, calories from added sugar, especially the calories from added sugar that are found in beverages like soda, like regular soda, like juice, um, and even like sugar-sweetened coffee drinks or sports drinks, these are what's linked to a slew of chronic diseases as well as risk of obesity, right? Because this is the number one source of added sugar in the American diet is sugar-sweetened beverages. So if you're swapping a diet soda for a regular soda, 
I would say that's a pretty good swap to make, especially because we have very solid data and very solid research that supports the idea that that overconsumption of added sugar can contribute to risk of chronic disease, while we have very limited and only really animal model research on these non-nutritive sweeteners or diet soda or the artificial sweeteners that you'll find in diet soda, right? So there's only animal models. There's no real way of testing this in a way that can really show cause and effect in human beings, especially because if we think that there could be a risk, why would we load up humans with diet beverages just to see how much they can possibly withstand. And even then, there's always going to be other factors, other confounding factors involved in any kind of research and evaluation of something like that. So we know that sugar-sweetened beverages are the number one source of added sugar in the American diet. We also know that overconsumption of added sugar is what really contributes to chronic disease risk long-term. So all of that being considered, your best bet is to choose the diet version of a of a sugar-sweetened beverage, like a diet soda, diet Coke, diet Pepsi, whatever you like, when you're given the choice. And to most of the time, choose water, sparkling water, any type of unsweetened beverage counts and contributes toward your daily hydration goals. All right. I hope that helps. As always, DM me your nutrition questions at Jacqueline London RD on Instagram. I can't wait to hear from you. I would love to know what's on your mind, what's top of mind for you. Send me your questions again at Jacqueline London RD and feel free to leave them in the comments when you leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Love you guys. Sherry, welcome to On the Side. We're here. We made it. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. It. Thank you for having me. This is a huge treat for me. But before we get into the the real meat of things, which I feel like is a is a pun in a way in this context, <laughs> given given our given our given where we're going with this conversation, let's start by talking about a whole. Give our listeners a day in your life. Let's start out with breakfast. Where are you? What are you having for breakfast? And what are you working on? What are you doing? Tell us about you. Is it a porridge situation? Is there an omelet involved? <laughs> Give us the lay of the All land. about the food. Give us the food, right? <laughs> no, I will, I will admit 100% and very easily and often that I am a coffee person first thing in the morning. So Priorities. Yeah. You're a priorities yeah, exactly. person. <laughs> I am. I am. And I get up before everybody else in the house so that I can have at least one cup of coffee by myself in the quiet you know, just to set my intentions for the day. My intention being to be my best self and not to strangle my family when they start driving me crazy before my coffee. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. What, um, and are you, so are you prepping breakfast for everybody at home or, or what's the story? Yeah. I mean, it depends on the day, you know, I'm, I have a, have the great privilege of having a very flexible work schedule. So sometimes I work from home and sometimes I work um, out of the home in in an office with other people face to face. And sometimes I'm traveling. So my life is a little bit, um, it changes from day to day, but if I'm home and I have time, I love to make breakfast for my family. So we have waffles or pancakes. Um, and sometimes they just want, you know, I know, right? Well, that's I wish amazing. somebody get to make me waffles or bread. Right. I'm like, wow, that sounds delicious right now. <laughs> <laughs> but usually it's just something simple. Like for them, it might be cereal or bagels with peanut butter. 
For me, it might be something equally simple like, Mm. you know, toast with peanut butter or I love to make overnight oats with a big old giant scoop of peanut butter. That to me is like the perfect breakfast. That is a heavenly breakfast. And I feel like we're only just now coming to the idea that peanut butter can be mixed into a lot of different random things. Not to take us completely off track here, but I just read something this morning that that blew my mind a little bit. Did you see that? Tropicana is making a cereal where you add orange juice to the cereal instead of milk. I I did not see that, but I have heard that. I actually have heard, especially with overnight oats, a lot of people will use fruit because if you think about muesli, right? Traditionally, yeah. it's made with apple juice. It's a really good point. I did that didn't even occur to me. I just was like, what is wrong <laughs> with people? I'm like ready to flip the table. What's wrong with you? No. <laughs> but I mean, juice in cereal. That really blows my mind. Peanut butter in cereal, however, feels like a a heavenly delight, but also like the most, especially in the winter, that sounds like the Mm. most satisfying thing I can imagine. Yum. So when you're traveling, do you have any travel-specific snacks, things on the road that that you pack with you, or are you one of those that's like, I get to the airport and then it's time for me to just go wild? No, 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 no. Uh, no, I am a typical dietitian. I never travel without food. <laughs> Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, so I, I will make myself, usually I make myself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for the road, just in case I need it, right? I always have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich Critical. for the road. And I usually take with me granola bars and some piece of fresh fruit. You know, you can take a lot through security. I think a lot of people think you can't take food through. You actually can. As long as it's not liquid, you can take it. So I take a lot with me. You're like, you're going through security with an instant pot. You're just like, let me just put this. Does this need to go through that x-ray machine or can I? Yeah, a travel blender so I can have my smoothie in the morning. Right. You've got the, you're like, let me just put this ninja on that conveyor belt, you know? Um, No, I, I totally agree. So you get up, you've got breakfast ready for everybody. What, what's next? Where are you going? You going in to your office or are you kind of doing a hybrid situation at the moment? Yeah, so right now it's a hybrid. I'm I'm usually in the office face-to-face one or two days a week and then working from home the rest of the time, which works really well for us. At our team at the National Peanut Board, we actually have everyone works from home on Thursday. So it's kind of yeah. nice because you know everyone's going to be at home. We don't schedule any in-person meetings on that day because we know no one's going to be in person. And that makes it nice so everyone kind of can plan. Right. That's such yeah. a good concept too of making it one designated day a week that's just that's the case for everybody because I feel like it just sort of streamlines the work process and it makes it so much easier you don't feel like oh no where's so and so are they working from home or are they in person it's just like a lot easier to manage I would imagine Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it is so with your current role with the National Peanut Board. What is that? What does that look like? What does that mean? What are you doing? Please tell me that that means there's a lot. What kind of peanut products are going on in the office? <laughs> I think that's really that's really the whole point of this interview, isn't it? It's just yeah. for me to know what the setup looks like at the office. Okay. <laughs> well, there's lots of peanuts. I can tell you that. Lots of peanut butter. We always have lots of peanut butter. We always have lots of peanuts. It's fun because we often get samples, you know, of what's going on around the country or if somebody sees something, they'll pick it up and bring it to the office. So um, we do a really good job of keeping each other in the loop on the latest innovation in peanut foods. And then when anybody goes to a show, you know, if anybody's going to a, a show, 
we'll pick up samples and or recipes, you know? So we have a great big kitchen, a communal kitchen where we can share food. And there's always food out on the table that includes, you know, every kind of snack you can think of that has peanuts in it, of course. Of course. Let's get into some more specific topics that I want to just get your take on and, and hear your thoughts about. So given your role at National Peanut Board. What do you think are some of the biggest myths when it comes to food allergies and peanut allergies specifically, but but food allergies in general that are out there today? And and if you wouldn't mind, if you would be so kind, Sherry, as a fellow dietitian, to share with our listeners also the difference between an allergy and an intolerance, because I keep hearing this being abused and mis and sort of like misrepresented. So I feel like we need you to clarify this for us right now. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, that that specific issue is probably one of the most common, right? M- the most absolutely. common misunderstandings. People think that every adverse reaction to a food or every time they have some sort of a GI upset and they also ate you know, right, in the right. recent past, <laughs> they think it must be connected, right? The two right. things must be connected. I ate something and then Three hours later, I, you know, had a headache. Oh, I must have food allergies. But the reality is that food allergies are something very specific. They are um, an IgE-mediated immune reaction. And IgE is an antibody that our bodies might create to something if, it, if our bodies think it might be something that's bad for us, right? That's like the very simplified <laughs> way to describe that. But sometimes our bodies make IgE for no reason, and we don't really know why that happens. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily even mean somebody has a food allergy. But the symptoms that typically qualify for a food allergy are those symptoms that happen very quickly after you eat a food, Mm. usually within um, minutes to up to two hours, but it's usually much faster. And the symptoms usually start in the mouth with itching, swelling in the mouth and the throat. It can cause some GI upset. Um, which can be vomiting or diarrhea, nausea, that kind of thing. And if you think about an intolerance, you know, usually lactose intolerance, probably the one most people are familiar with, those symptoms can be very similar, the GI symptoms. The difference in an IgE-mediated food allergy reaction is that it can also include any other organ system, right? Mm. So an intolerance is usually related to not being able to break down some sort of constituent of the food, typically a carbohydrate, right? A sugar, some sort of something like that that can cause upset stomach, but isn't going to cause anaphylaxis or any sort of systemic reaction. Right. That's the biggest difference. I hope that was clear. No, that's super clear. So do you think that probably that's one of the bigger misconceptions or myths about, about food allergies in general? And are there other myths that you hear about frequently through through your current work that that you think could use a little dispelling myth busting if you will yeah yeah <laughs> definitely and I'm so glad you're asking me this because of course you know May 8th through the 14th is food allergy awareness week and so this is this feels really timely you know totally. as we kind of think about yeah think about this topic so you know there are a lot of myths you know and I think they are connected to that misunderstanding about what a food allergy is at all mm. um, you know one of them is if you, if you ask the public, how many people do you think have a food allergy? They'll say something in the neighborhood of 20% or 30% of people. They think that large percent of the population has a food allergy when really it's probably a lot less than that. You know, some estimates suggest between four and 8% of children mm-hmm. and maybe as many as 10% of adults have a food allergy. 
But all of that information is self-reported, right? right? And so if you think about that, you know, difficulty with discerning between what's a food allergy and what's some other kind of reaction, those numbers are difficult to depend on. They are mm-hmm. the best numbers we have but they're still really not great. So I think that, you know, a lot of people think that food allergies affect way more people than they do. And it doesn't mean that they're not important, but it's not quite as pervasive as I think people think it is. That's such a good point about the self-reporting. I I didn't, the last time, wow. And, and now I'm thinking about it. The last time that I had looked into this. I just don't think that it was as top of mind for me that it's a self-reported outcome measure. So it's already, there's so many problems associated with that because we don't really know if that means that someone is saying they have an allergy or if they have an intolerance. So maybe far lower than those numbers is essentially what that means. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. Okay. So what do you think it is that made this kind of, it's sort of like a larger bucket of myths almost about the idea of how pervasive food allergies actually are and and how many people what the what the true incidence actually is how did it get that way like how did we get here sherry help us how did we get here (laughs) well i think you know some of it is because of this misunderstanding about what really is a food allergy what quantifies as a food allergy or qualifies rather as a food allergy but i think some of it has been in a good way, thanks to the food allergy community, they've really done a great job of increasing awareness. Um, some of that, however, has been driven by fear, right? Mm. So they're afraid. And, 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 and I think that as a mom, I can understand a lot of that fear, right? If I had a child who had a food allergy and food allergies can be very unpredictable and maybe I've seen my child have a severe reaction, I'm going to be really afraid and I'm going to do everything Mm. I can to make sure that everyone knows about this food allergy and the potential serious reactions, and even, you know, in some cases, death can happen due to food allergies. So I think some of it is that, you know, really sounding the alarm from the food allergy community. And that's been great for raising awareness. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, I have to blame us, you know, in in some cases, the food, you know, the healthcare community, we haven't always done a great job of educating those folks about the true risk around food right. allergies, what, you know, what, what the true risks are and then how they can keep themselves safe. And mm. I think that that's a place where we can fill in the gaps. And as dietitians and health experts, we can help people understand what are the true risks around food allergy. And we haven't even talked about diagnosis, but, you know, really looking at how do we diagnose a food allergy, not relying on home tests, which are just, you know, not even of any value when it comes to food allergies, you know, not relying on any blood test alone to diagnose a food allergy, really an oral food challenge and the history are the most important tools that we have when we're diagnosing a food allergy. Okay. So let's talk about that because I would love for you to give us a sort of snapshot of what that means. Tell us about the oral food test and then tell us about the history. Sure. So anytime somebody has a reaction that they think is a food allergy, they should probably write down as much as they can as quickly as possible, right? What did they eat? How much did they eat? How long did it take before a reaction happened? What exactly was the reaction? When did the reaction go away? All of those kinds of things should be written down so that when they go to the doctor, they can say, I ate this food. 
and this is what happened. And collecting that history can really give a great picture. For instance, if somebody eats a food that they've eaten many times before and they've never had a reaction and then all of a sudden they have a reaction, that might not be a food allergy, right? right. Or if they've never eaten that food before and then suddenly they eat it and they have a reaction, that might be another reason to consider, okay, maybe this is a food allergy. Mm. Or if someone has a reaction immediately after eating something Depending on the kind of reaction, that can be indicative of a food allergy. If somebody's eaten lots of different foods and, and many different potential common allergens, that can make it a lot harder, right? Mm. What an oral food challenge can do is um, is discern exactly what might be causing the reaction. And what happens is an individual will go into the supervised medical office, right, with mm -hmm. a physician or a nurse who's trained to administer an oral food challenge, and they'll eat a small amount of the food, and then they'll be observed. And then they'll eat a little bit more, and they'll be they'll continue to be observed. And what they're looking for is objective signs of a reaction, right? So swelling, itching, that's obvious. Hives are very common with food allergy reactions, although they don't always happen. And then they'll do that until they get to a full dose or a full portion of the food that would typically be eaten without a reaction. Or if they have a reaction, they'll stop feeding and they'll say, okay, this person really does have a food allergy. And right. that's the gold standard for diagnosing a food allergy. I think that's such a good point because I think we're so socialized almost around the idea that a blood test can be definitive or that a test of some kind gives us all of the answers when actually it's really the soft softer data in this case that that actually tells the story and that gives the full picture of what's happening. And a lot of that can't, may or may not show up on that blood test. Or like you said about the IgE protein showing up in a blood test, that could mean a number of different things. The other question I wanted to ask you is in terms of like the food history component of things, how easy or how sort of straightforward is it to know what's going on a, when you're in an emergency situation, which is obviously terrifying if this is happening to you as an adult, or if you're the adult and you're with a child, that's even exponentially more terrifying. So how do we even begin to sort of start understanding where this might be coming from, how it might be manifesting, and how we would even know if it's a mixed food with some of the top allergens in that dish. You know what I you know yeah. what I mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where the history comes in, right? Yeah. So the previous dietary history, what was the person eating before that, right? Were they eating shellfish and having no problem? Were they eating peanuts and having no problem? Or had they not eaten it in the recent past or had they never eaten it? And there are a lot of other kinds of reactions that can be happening that, that look like anaphylaxis, so that may feel like anaphylaxis as well. And it depends on the age of the person and their overall health history. I mean, there are a lot of things to consider. So when you're thinking about diagnosing a food allergy, it's really a little bit of art and science, right? Mm. So we use the science, what we know about reactions, what they typically look like, what, you know, when they can happen. They can occur at any time in life, by the way, an allergy right. can start in adulthood, even if you've eaten a food as a child and not had a problem, you could still develop a food allergy in adulthood. It happens. Okay. Um, and then the blood test, the serum IgE blood test, which tests against a specific food, those can be helpful for ruling out a food allergy. They're mm. actually, they have a very good negative predictive value. They have a very poor positive predictive value, which means that about 50 to 60% of the positive tests are wrong. Wow. Which is about flip a coin, right? Right. So, you know, it's not diagnostic on its own, but it can help with ruling out a food allergy. 
Right. Got it. Interesting. What you just said, I think, is really powerful and so impactful for people to know that it's it's sort of like a combined effort of both personal history, what's observable, what can we see in doing that food sort of food test setting, what we can see using biochemical indicators, using all of the tools that are available to us. But as dietitians, where do you think we have a more specific role in education and sort of prevention of the, of the kind of scarier components that I think people, myself included, I mean, the idea of anaphylaxis is obviously terrifying. So like, where do you think we can play a role in this? Like, where do we, where do we really have a, a sort of, you know, drum to beat when it comes to food allergy awareness and, and education in general? Yeah, that's a great question. And I have a lot to say on that topic. Yes. Tell I us, Sherry. Wrote, you know, a, a number of years ago, I wrote the uh, practice paper for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics on this subject, you know, the role of the registered dietitian in yes. food allergy management diagnosis. So I would point people to that document. It, it needs updating. So hopefully we're going to get to update that before too long. But I would say that, you know, number one, this is an interdisciplinary practice. You know, mm. food allergies are not something that dietitians should be doing all by themselves. It's something we should be doing in collaboration with other healthcare professionals, because really when it comes to diagnosis, we can help so much in the history collection, understanding that and helping people discern between the kinds of other food related adverse reactions that can look like food allergies, but are not food allergies. That's one place where I think dietitians can really help a lot, but diagnosis itself should happen from a board certified allergist. So mm. that's one thing. Right. You know, let's work together with other healthcare professionals, respecting their expertise, learning from them, partnering with them. That's one thing. And then I think, you know, really helping educate people about the basics on food allergies. And you don't have to be a food allergy expert, even as a dietitian to do that. You can learn the basics about, you know, what is a food allergy? What's not a food allergy and help people and then refer to people, you know, who are experts. So dietitians who specialize in food allergies, really sending your clients to them if they need that expert guidance. I think that's really important. Right. And for those of us who do consider ourselves experts, you know, once somebody has a food allergy, our job is really to help them avoid the allergen, right? Mm -hmm. They should not eat the food at all if they have an allergy, unless they're doing some sort of experimental treatment or they're doing oral immunotherapy. That's another whole area where I right. think dietitians can work. And then of course, Jackie, prevention, you know, yeah. I mean, we have so much good research now on how to prevent food allergies. So really working with our patients at every age to help them understand and know about the latest recommendations that babies should be eating these foods, in particular peanut, um, mm. in the first year of life as a way to prevent peanut allergies. You know, there's some great research that is incredibly compelling that sh that's changed our whole approach to feeding babies now. Yeah. Wow. Really, really interesting. And I, especially because I think that you were mentioning before this whole topic of fear, right? Like of of the idea of like, there was a time and especially probably 10 years ago, I want to say maybe five, maybe five to 10 years ago, somewhere in that window where it seemed like anyone I knew who had a newborn or who was sort of introducing solids to their babies had this tremendous amount of fear around 
what it would be like to introduce a new food. And it almost seemed like there was a, a sort of peak period where it was like every new food that was introduced was like, oh no, what if my child is allergic to this? I mean, I don't really know exactly how that component of things started, but I feel like I feel like it has calmed a little bit. But tell us a little bit more about that kind of intro phase for, for listeners who are new parents or for anyone who is who is a caretaker who is looking to to kind of help in the whole preventative aspect of this. How does it work and and what does everyone need to know about it? Well, I think that that fear you were talking about and the hesitancy that you were talking about really came because the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2000 said to avoid the top allergens for That's one, right. two, or three That's years. Right. Yeah, so, That's right. Yeah. Okay. I knew I was not making that up out of nowhere. I was like, where did that come no. from? No, I remember that. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and that was really the most conservative. They thought it was the most conservative approach because they Mm. were seeing this increase in food allergies, which was a real increase, but they didn't really know how to prevent it. And and the thinking at that time was that the gut was immature and babies needed time for their gut to mature and then Mm. they could handle these larger proteins. But what we have learned through research is actually, it's the other way around. When we feed those foods to babies, we're training the immune system, right? We're teaching the body that these are safe foods, that the body should be able to handle them, that they can eat them, and it's not a problem. Yeah, so in 2015, there was a study published called the LEAP study, which stands for Learning Early About Peanut Allergy. Yeah, and that study was of high-risk infants. So we know that eczema, especially severe eczema that's difficult to treat, is a significant risk factor for developing peanut allergy. Mm. And so they recruited babies who had severe eczema or who already had been diagnosed with egg allergy, because that's another indicator of, of risk, right? If a baby has one allergy, they're the more likely to develop another allergy. And for whatever reason, egg and peanut seem to sort of be connected. Mm. And so they recruited babies who either had the severe eczema or had egg allergy or had both. And then they randomized them into two groups. And these babies were between four and 11 months old. And at the age of recruitment, they started either feeding them peanut foods in one arm or they avoided peanut foods for five years. And then they, at the end of five years, they did an oral food challenge, as I described earlier with these children, and they found up to an 86% reduction in peanut allergy in the babies that ate peanut foods early. So it was huge. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. Huge. And also, there's just something very cute about the image of baby recruitment. I just like that phrase. <laughs> like, we, we recruited the babies. <laughs> Come on over, baby. Come on over. Crawl on over here. That's very cute. That's, I'm not, again, not trying, not trying to take us off topic, but very cute image through my mind at the moment. Um, really interesting. And also really interesting about the egg peanut connection, which yeah. I feel like is is somewhat lesser known. But the eczema component is also really good to know. I think a lot of that kind of mystery or fear really comes from not knowing what the risk factors are. Are there any other risk factors that were missing in that? I guess family history would be one. Is that also a, a risk factor or is that not related? It's not considered to be a high risk. So, mm. so if you have a family member, a first degree relative who has a food allergy, you know, that does increase your risk some, but it isn't considered high risk. So when we think right. about babies in particular and their risk, really we're looking at those two main components. Do they mm. already have an egg allergy or another allergy? And do they have uh, moderate to severe eczema? Severe eczema seems to be the bigger issue. 
So after the LEAP study was published, you know, the internationally pediatric organizations immediately started saying, okay, we need to feed babies peanut foods to help prevent this allergy, right? This right. is compelling. This is clear. We don't need anything else. We need, we know now this works. And the other thing they found was that it was safe. Mm. So, you know, even in the children who went on to develop a food allergy, or if they had a, a, a reaction and turned out to be allergic, it wasn't like they were having significant anaphylaxis and ending up in the hospital. If they had allergies, they had a reaction and they were able to treat it and then avoid, um, right. which I think is important for people to recognize, you know, two of the biggest concerns that people have when they think about introducing peanut foods is choking, right? right. And I think it's really important for us to talk about how to safely introduce. So we'll come back mm. to that. And it's reactions. You know, people are afraid of food allergy reactions. But what we know is that, you know, in infancy, anaphylaxis is very unlikely. It's very right. unlikely that they're going to have a severe reaction. You might have a reaction and we need to be prepared for that. But it's very unlikely that they would have a severe reaction. And the other thing is that only 2% of babies have a peanut allergy. Only 2% of children have a food allergy. Right. So that means like 98% of children are not going to have a peanut allergy. That's, that's good news. Right. I mean, that's the overwhelming sort of concern slash focus from my end is that it's equal parts so significant and important that we sort of have the a stake in this, that we are driving some of the narrative on this, we as dietitians. I mean, um, but at the same time, you're, I feel like I'm always kind of balancing this in any form of communication because I don't want to create that false impression that everyone has this when it really is only 2% of, of kids. So, or less than 2%, right? Like it could be even less than that. So, all right. So let's go back to what you mentioned about the, the sort of safe intro of peanuts. What's it look like? Tell us everything. Yeah. Start from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, I think it's really important to recognize that peanuts should not be fed to babies. You know, the mm. AAP doesn't recommend whole peanuts until after four or five years old. So no whole peanuts. And even peanut butter, like in its original state, can be a choking hazard. But it's very easy to make it safe. All we do is take peanut butter in the recommendations from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, which came out after the LEAP study. Mm. They say two teaspoons of peanut butter thinned with two tablespoons of warm water or breast milk or formula. And that's wow. it. it. It creates like yeah. a slurry. Right. You can also do that with powdered peanut butter, which is right. super popular these days, right? right. Powdered <laughs> peanut butter or peanut flour. Or there are a number of companies now that have puffs that are for babies out on the market that are peanut containing. And you I just love a puff. melt those in water. I know, right? Me too. I really do. I mean, I just feel like what magic... What magic we were given <laughs> in the form of a peanut puff. Wait, so is there yeah. a difference between, this is probably a silly question, but is there a difference between the puffs that are like the baby puffs and then the bomba for adults? Uh, no. <laughs> There's no difference. You're right? eating baby okay. food. <laughs> okay, great, great, okay. That makes me feel better. That makes me feel so useful. <laughs> uh, yeah, Bamba is the one that actually was used in the LEAP study. And right. um, it's a great example. And there are several other brands now, too, that are out on the market mm. um, that have similar similar um, kind of idea of a melty puff that a baby can hold and self-feed. Okay. So, you know, the recommendation for these high-risk infants is to start feeding them as early as four months. So between four and six months. Um, if they're at high risk, earlier introduction is probably more protective than waiting. Right. But for children who don't have that severe eczema or egg allergy, they can start around six months and then just keep it in the diet. Once it's once the baby's 
eating the food and doesn't have a problem, then just keep it in the diet regularly. For those high-risk infants, it's probably around three times a week. For uh, everyone else, it's sort of ad-lib. You know, babies Mm. love peanuts and peanut butter. Once you introduce peanut butter to a baby, they're like, yeah, give me more of that. Thank you. I feel like (laughs) that happened to me. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so when you were talking about this earlier and and you've mentioned this a couple of times about the high the high risk versus any other sort of risk level lower risk medium risk whatever wherever you are on that spectrum you mentioned how rare the anaphylactic reaction would be if if at all right i mean the incidence must be pretty significantly low i would imagine so what would a parent be looking for if it's not going to be anaphylaxis, what could it be that would be a reaction? Yeah, that's a good question. So I mentioned um, hives earlier, right? Mm-hmm. So in infants, the research has shown that the most common reactions, if they're going to have a food allergy reaction, are hives. So sort of a profuse rash, not like a few spots around their mouth. That can mm-hmm. just be contact reaction to anything that's you know irritating. Um, But if they have reaction that includes a rash across their body in multiple places, that could be a reaction or vomiting. Vomiting Mm. is the second, you know, the other most common type of reaction that can happen. So if the baby starts to vomit suddenly after eating peanut foods or another potential allergen, that can actually indicate a potential allergy. And then, you know, more severe kinds of reactions, like if the baby's coughing constantly after they've eaten something um, and they're not choking, that could be a problem. If they're showing, obviously, any signs of distress breathing or lethargy, or um, if they're drooling a lot more than normal, that can be a sign that there could be a problem. That can be Mm. a challenge because these babies are also in the teething stage, right? So just drooling alone might not be an indication but if they've got some of those other symptoms alongside, that might be cause for concern. Okay. So this is going to maybe sound like a strange question, but... (laughs) I love strange questions. I mean, this is a strange question, (laughs) but I, as I'm thinking about this, I feel like I'm not a parent, but if I were a parent, I mean, even as a puppy parent, (laughs) I, I have had those moments where you're just like, oh no, do you have any tips for parents just in ge- yeah. just for like the idea of I mean if I had a, a sort of and and please excuse my language on this sherry but if I had a sort of mantra for my own personal nutrition philosophy it would be everyone calm the fuck down right but like that's really hard to say to a parent right like because obviously you're like oh no I have this new tiny human I'm in charge of keeping it alive like what like what would help everyone calm down a little bit more when it comes to like that moment of intensity and and how can we feel like a little bit more empowered on on this sort of new phase of life for everyone yeah (laughs) oh so you use my word isn't you know is when i talk to dietitians about educating families i always talk about empowering parents to feed their babies we should be empowered because food should be fun for babies and for children Food is fun. Like right. they, they love food. They love to play with it. They love to squish it. They love to put it in their mouth and their hair, all their shirt on the ground. They like to feed the dog. <laughs> they love food. And we should have fun with food too. And we should approach it from a fun perspective. Right. So I think that, you know, if you're if you have a baby and you're not in that high risk category, then you can calm down. Right. <laughs> and you can right. and you can approach this from a very 
fun perspective. You need to be aware of the potential for allergy, but you need to also remember that the vast majority of babies don't have allergies and your baby probably won't have allergies either. And if they do, then you'll just deal with it, right? You'll just deal with it. It's usually not that big of a deal and you're probably not going to be in that very small minority that has a major issue. If you are, then you need to be prepared. But right. if you're in that high-risk category, you know, one thing I would say is it's okay to talk to the doctor first, right? To have a conversation with the doctor and say, hey, when do you think I should introduce peanut foods to the baby? And do you have mm. any suggestions? And in some cases, some doctors might say, let's do some testing first. Maybe bring the baby into the office and feed them in the office. You know, that's ah. another thing that can happen, particularly for those high-risk babies. Such an interesting point, especially for single parents who are doing this on their own. I feel like just the idea of having somebody else around could be so soothing and comforting and and just, again, helps cultivate that kind of sense of empowerment just in general. Mm -hmm. Such a good point. Okay. So as a parent yourself, Sherry, are there pieces of advice that worked for you personally, and I know you have a son who's eight, so it's been a it's been a little while, but not too long. I mean, no. just a quick eight I years. Remember. Not wait, exactly. You grow <laughs> just like yesterday. Time it moves so fast. <laughs> but like, were were there any sort of pieces of info, guidance, any tidbits that you kind of picked up as a dietitian that you were like, okay, I'm going to use this. I'm not going to use this. I mean, and this, and by the way, this obviously for any listener, like this doesn't, this is just more my curiosity for you as a dietitian and a parent and not guidelines of, of any kind. But was there anything that you were like, I'm definitely using that. I'm going to ignore that person or, or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, you know, I think food should be fun. And that was my approach when I started yeah. feeding my son, you know, we were really, I was very much like, this was actually before the guidelines came out, mm. before the LEAP study was published. But I knew because the AAP, while they made those recommendations in 2000, in 2008, they actually came out and said there was no evidence to to show that avoidance actually prevented allergies. Right. So we were very much like, we're just going to eat all the foods and we're not going to worry about it. And so when my son was ready, and that's another thing too, is remembering the stages of readiness, right? Does the yeah. baby, can the baby hold their neck up? Or can right. they, are they looking like they're ready to chew? Are they interested in food? Are they putting things in their mouth? And those kinds of things can help determine, is it a safe time to start introducing? And then we just went slowly at the beginning, but we also weren't afraid to just start, you know? Right. I mean, I think that's the thing is just start, just have fun. And I think also knowing the potential Now, I, you know, and this is the thing that I shared now is that waiting to introduce allergens, especially peanut foods, carries risk, right? Doing nothing is also a risk factor. So if we don't introduce peanut foods in that first year and probably earlier, you know, closer to six months than 12 months, then every month that we wait increases the risk that a child's going to develop a peanut allergy especially when we think about health equity and children who, you know, maybe live in lower socioeconomic status, those folks are going to carry a heavier burden if they go on to develop a food allergy because, you know, allergen safe foods cost more money. You know, they carry more burden when it comes to healthcare costs. They may actually lose more income because they can't go to work because the child is sick or because they have an issue. So I think that's, you know, that's something to keep in mind too. Doing nothing is also a risk. Oh, 
Such, I just got the chills as you said that for some reason. I really feel like that it's such a good point. I mean, doing doing nothing sometimes has a higher impact, a more severe impact than actually taking action. And I feel like that is true of food allergies and it's true of so many things. So I really appreciate you saying that. All right. I want to switch gears to your approach to supermarket shopping. What are some of your kind of go-to best practices in general when it comes to food shopping? So I do a little bit of everything. I mean, I do online shopping for sure. I mean, I love that so many of the grocery stores now have apps where you can Mm. go onto their app and you can make your list and then you can just pull up and pick it up. So if if I'm having a busy week, especially if it's a travel week for me, that's what I do because I don't want to waste two hours of my precious time in the grocery store if I, if I don't have it to waste. Right. But if I don't have to travel and I have the time, then I might do a combo. I might do like, I like to do drive up for the things that I don't have to think about, right? Right. I don't do produce for drive up, but for everything else that's, you know, dry goods or whatever, I'm just going to pull up and let them put it in the car because I don't have to think too hard about that. Yeah. But if it's produce, like, let me pick out my own. I want to, you know, I want to tap on my own watermelons and, you know, check out my apples and make sure they're not bruised. <laughs> I want to make sure 100%. my lettuce is perfect. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's, now- it's true. It's a really funny one because I used to feel like, oh my God, for crying out loud, like we've all got, we've got <laughs> lives to live. I can't pick out the bread. Now I'm like, no, no, no. I, the, the true dietitian type A person in me comes out and goes, no, no, I got to see that. I, I have to smell that cantaloupe and I yes, got to know, absolutely. is it yes. too ripe? Because it's not for me. <laughs> yes. And my husband, although he is incredibly helpful and he has his own skill set, he's not the grocery shopper. And mm-hmm. I don't send him to the grocery store to get anything because who knows what he's going to come back with. hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, and I do love the farmer's market. We have a, yes. we have a great farmer's market too, not too far from my house on Saturdays. So I love to go to the farmer's market. It's about a mile, a little over a mile. So I can actually walk to the market and buy my produce and then come back. So I'm a little spoiled that way. That and we have feels chickens. like such a treat. You so, have chickens? What do yeah, you mean? Yeah, and we have chickens. I have four chickens and a raised bed. And I have blueberry bushes, blackberry bushes, and I have fruit trees. So in the summer and in the fall, I have like all the food on site, which is nice. Sherry. I got to hear about the chickens. First of all, first of all, this really makes me sound like the most New Yorkery New Yorker ever having this reaction. I, I can I can float outside of my body and hear how insane I sound probably to the rest of the country. But for New Yorkers will understand that I don't know what this is like. Tell me everything. First of all, do they have names? What are their names? Yes. So we have two older girls that have been with us for a year longer than our younger girls. And so their names are Ginger. And Ginger is a Rhode Island red, so she's sort of a very beautiful coppery color, like reddish copper. And then we have a Dominicker, which is a black and white bird called uh, Omelette. <laughs> My <laughs> husband named her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. He's got a great sense of humor. Oh, I love and then that we so have, much. Okay. And then we have two beautiful birds called Golden Wyandots, and their feathers are black and gold. And one is called Goldie, and the other one is called Roger. And my son named Roger. <laughs> Roger is perfect. I, I mean, yeah. between Roger, Omelette, Ginger, and Goldie, I, it almost feels like the four the four Musketeers. It's sort of like the yeah. Golden Girls. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could have gone there. That would have been smart. <laughs> I love that. So you have fresh eggs all the time, nonstop. 
24-7. Every day. Yeah. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What a gift. It wow. Is. They're the most expensive eggs in the country, though, because, True. you know, they're, they're True. It's much less expensive to purchase eggs than it is to have your own chickens, in my case, you know. I totally just, hear that, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can see that. It's yeah. like, I, I mean, again, New Yorker, true New Yorker problem would be me thinking like, oh, yes, how cost effective. And then you're like, no. wait, no, the no. upkeep mm -mm. really just yeah. undid everything. I thought I was doing this for. Okay. Yeah. All right. But one of the reasons I love having them and also having a garden and all this is to really teach children, teach my child about where food comes from, right? Yes. I think a lot of people don't know where food comes from. And, you know, I've had being, and I didn't grow up on a farm. You know, mm. I have my little, you know, one acre farm here, but, but right. I didn't grow up on a farm. I didn't know a lot about farming until I started working with the National Peanut Board. And what I have learned is that farmers are, first of all, they're amazing people. You know, only about 2% of the country actually grows all the food that we eat, which is incredible, right? right? They love what they do. They love their land. They take incredible care of it. They're so proud of what they do. And I love that. And I, I wanted to be able to give my son a little bit of that, right. even if he doesn't get to go with me to the peanut farm. Wow. So in your, so in your experience and when you're traveling, right? Like when you, you mentioned when you're having a travel week, are you meeting with, with growers? Are you interacting with growers? How much of the, the sort of growing, experience, <laughs> the, the growers growing experience, are you getting involved with and, and where have your travels taken you and what has, <laughs> what sort of come from that and what have you learned from various growers? If, if you can share a couple nuggets with us, a, oh, few, yeah. a few peanuts with us. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> I'll be yeah, here all I week, everyone. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> I, I would say, you know, I, I have had the chance to travel around the country and meet peanut farmers, mm. all, you know, from around the country. Peanuts are grown really just along the southern part of the United States from about the Virginias and Carolinas or Virginia and the Carolinas uh, along the coast um, and the southern part of our, our country all the way out to New Mexico and Texas, Oklahoma mm. area, right? So they need a, they have a long growing season. And so that's really where our peanut farmers live. And there are only about 7,000 peanut farming families around the country. So it's not a huge, when you think about, you know, 330 million people in the country, that's really a small number of people growing this incredible crop that we eat all the right. time, right? And, right? and so, so I've had the chance to meet a lot of those folks and to see some beautiful peanut farms. You know, most of our farmers, many of them are multi-generational farmers, right? So right. their families have been farming the same land for generations and, and they just love it. They love what they do. They have small margins, you know, so they have large farms a lot of times in order to help make that work, right? And make farming sustainable for them. You know, we hear a lot about sustainability and it is an incredibly important thing to think about. And by the way, peanuts have an incredible sustainability story, you know, 100%. they use, yeah, far less water than most other nuts They're, you know, they actually return nitrogen to the soil, making the soil healthier mm. for the next crop. I mean, they're, they're just in the, and you can use every part of the peanut, which is right. awesome. You know, there's no waste there. But our farmers are really, you know, they're devoted to what they do. They're always looking for ways to do it better. They're, you know, they're always looking for innovation. Um, we've made incredible strides in farming, in agriculture mm -hmm. for peanuts, in um, increasing yields and decreasing inputs, which means less water, less 
chemicals, anything like that, you know, over the last 10 years. And that's been done through conventional breeding, you know? So I think that that's, that's an amazing story too. Wow. Wow. So interesting. I got to switch gears and we have two things left that we have to do and we are basically out of time. So we have a short amount of time to get this done. So let's just dive into it <laughs> in, in, a, in a sort of version of a speed round. I'm going to say a statement about peanuts. And I these are the ones that come up all the time for me in practice. I'm sure they've come up for you that you are probably really, really deep in, in these little myths about... <laughs> Or I shouldn't have given that away. I shouldn't have said this. Okay, these little <laughs> statements about peanuts, these statements about peanuts, what, I'm going to say one of them. I'm going to say them, and then you tell me where that's perhaps a bit misguided. Okay, all right. So first one is peanut butter is fattening. This, I feel like, is such a boomery thing to say. Yeah. Nothing against boomers listening to this podcast, <laughs> but please, Sherry, peanut yeah. butter is fattening. Talks. I want to say, eh. right? <laughs> we do. We need a bell for this yeah, podcast. Yeah. He's a bell. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So peanuts. I mean, peanut butter is actually not fattening. I mean, it is. It is certainly has fat in it, but the fat that's in peanut butter is heart healthy fat. You know, mostly the good fat that we want to eat more often. It also contains protein and thirty different vitamins and nutrients. It's got fiber, and it's actually a food that's super satiating. So it's difficult to overeat peanut butter, right? It's something 100%. that you eat, and it and it makes you feel full. Love it. Okay. What happened to peanuts on airplanes? This is actually a great question. What did happen? Are those still happening on airplanes? Depends on the airline, I think. What happened to peanuts on it does. airlines? Okay. Yeah. Okay. It does. It depends on the it depends on the airline and it depends on who you ask. Right. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of it does connect to misinformation and misperception. People think that peanut protein is going to become airborne and that's going to cause a problem. But the research has actually shown that peanut protein is really heavy and it settles out of the air very quickly. So even mm -hmm. if you were doing something like cracking peanuts out of the shell, which can you know, make a little protein go poof up into the air. It right. settles very quickly and very close to where it was opened. There's actually been research that's shown that to be the case. So that is so interesting. I definitely never knew that one. I feel like if anyone is listening who works for an airline, <laughs> tell everyone, <laughs> bring back the peanut on the plane. This is misinformation for sure. I love that. That's fascinating. Okay. Next one is nut butter is expensive. Not peanut butter. <laughs> I mean, peanut butter is one of the most affordable foods you can buy. It really is. And it's available everywhere. It's shelf-stable. It can be used in a thousand different ways. So when we think about affordability, we also mm. need to think about versatility, right? Versatility from a eating episode. It can be eaten at any meal. It can be used in a snack. It can be, you can take it with you. You can use it for a sauce, for a spread, for, you know, to create bars and balls. And it's amazing. Oh, Sherry. Thank God for you, Sherry. That is a beautiful thing. Okay. This is our, la our last one of the speed round, but this is definitely the one that I'm still hearing all the time, probably the most frequently. Honey roasted or salted or flavored peanuts aren't good for you. I only eat the plain unsalted ones. Not true. Not true. Actually, the um, salted peanuts are the ones that have had the heart health check in the past because they are heart healthy, you know? I so I think that, that it does, you have to, we have to look at food in a, in a much less reductionistic approach, right? It's the overall diet and it's what's that food overall? What's the composition of that food overall? A little bit of sugar, a little bit of salt really doesn't make that much difference when we think about the incredible nutrition bang for your buck when it comes to peanuts. 
thousand percent. Love that. Love that. Okay. All right. Our final question, our final moments together, Sherry. If you had a dream day of meals and snacks, what's on the menu? What are we eating? Tell us. Where are we going? (laughs) What are we drinking? Uh, Tell us about uh. it. What's that looking like? Well, I had I had two thoughts because you primed me for this question, and yes. I'm glad you did. Cause I had to really think I know, about. It's you really, know, I what? have to keep doing that because it's a hard question yeah. to answer. But I I like it to sort is. of I like to sort of ease everyone's or sort of like a switch because anyone yeah. food people this is like the hardest question you could it possibly is. think of. However, yeah. I like to say it can be a snapshot in time. It can be what you're yeah. currently into. So okay, so take it yeah. away. Well, for me, I mean, my my like best food memory, favorite food, food I love, I wish I could eat all the time is my grandmother's biscuits. I mean, that's really for me, like melty, delicious, fluffy, crunchy on the outside, buttery biscuits that my grandmother made when I was a child. Like if I could just sit on that stool one more time and watch her hands work in the dough and then eat those warm, fluffy, steamy biscuits, that would be like forever the meal that I want to eat every day, all the time, like just Pass the honey and the butter and maybe some honey peanut butter, you know? Oh, <laughs> I mean, my God, yes. That would be the perfect food. Okay. First of all, that statement about biscuits just made me feel suddenly starving. But what I really <laughs> love about a biscuit is that it's a blank canvas. You know what I mean? Yes. Like you like you yes. just named three. Mm-hmm. You said honey, peanut butter, butter, and honey. Or did, you, did mm-hmm. I just make that up? Or just no, a salt, right. maybe a little yeah. preserve, a raspberry yeah. preserve, yeah. personally? Yeah, yeah. Sounds like I have heaven. to tell you another one, though, because I have yes. two. Like, okay. Like, okay. For me, like Please. food is very emotional. Is it for you, too? A thousand like, percent, yeah. yes. Yeah. There's certain yeah. foods that, like, the second you get the smell or the taste, like, either one of the – I feel like, okay, I was here at this time and in this mm-hmm. moment. But I love that you said mm-hmm. that about your grandmother's. I, it just made me think yeah. about my grandma's chocolate pudding pie, which honestly was not all that homemade. (laughs) Like there was some instant (laughs) components in that pie. But uh, when you said that, I just thought about standing over the, like mixing the instant, whatever. (laughs) It was pretty instant. I mean, there might've been a microwave involved, but still it feels like I just remember being in that kitchen and sitting on that stool in the same exact way that you just described that hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. The other one for me is um, is actually a peanut memory and, and is something that uh, that legit is still the habit that I have. And one mm. of my favorite things is we go to the beach every year and we all I've been going to the same area of the beach forever my whole life since I was a little kid. And we always stop on the way through South, South Georgia and pick up boiled peanuts. Oh. And boiled peanuts for a car ride, like for, for a road trip, that's still the thing that I always want every year on the way to the beach, boiled peanuts and something cold to drink. You know, Ooh. while we're still driving, it's going to be like an ice cold, you know, Coke, Coca-Cola. Yes. But yes. then when we get to the beach, like boiled peanuts and an ice cold beer. Yes. <laughs> like I'm not going right. to lie. Maybe not that in the car, but once you get not there, in the car. 100%. Yes. Love 100%. that. 100%. You know, toes in the sand, ice cold oh. beer, bucket of boiled peanuts. I'm like, heaven. Perfect. That's heaven. Wait, that <laughs> makes me want to be there right now. Let's go. Let's go let's there. Let's go. Come on. Let's go. <laughs> Sherry, thank you so much for being here. Where can our listeners learn more, find you, learn everything about you? Where can we go? 
direct us. Well, I'm not going to tell them everything, but I'll tell them a whole lot. (laughs) And people can certainly find us at nationalpeanutboard.org. Also, if they want to learn more about preventing peanut allergies, I don't want to forget to mention our Mm. website called preventpeanutallergies.org, which is a great place to learn more about that topic. But they can also find me on Instagram as the peanutrd at at peanutrd. Awesome. Sherry, thank you so much. This was fantastic. Thank you, Jackie. Thanks so much for tuning in today to this episode of On the Side with Jackie London. If you enjoyed today's episode, please snap a screenshot of your podcast app on your phone, post it to your Instagram stories, and tag me at JacquelineLondonRD to let me know your favorite takeaway from any part of the episode. If you're loving the show, if there's a topic you'd love to hear more about or a guest you'd love to listen to here, I'd absolutely love to hear from you. You can scroll down on your podcast app to where it says ratings and reviews and rate this one five stars, of course, and share your feedback. Your words might just be what the next person needs to tune in and start feeling more empowered and living better one meal or snack at a time. Of course, be sure to follow On The Side wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you won't miss out on any episodes. And remember to check us out. Check out the Q&A deep dive on the On The Side YouTube channel. This show is produced and edited by Elizabeth Evans Media Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Keep in mind that any advice provided on this podcast is based off of my clinical judgment and application of research and practice as a registered dietitian, and it should not take the place of medical advice from your own personal physician. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.